0: Would you take your Bibles, please, and join me in the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John chapter 17. If you don't have sermon notes, the ushers are moving through the auditorium. They have extras. Just raise your hand. They'll hand that to you as we are in John chapter 17, please. John 17. Somebody on a website put out this this request. What is the silliest argument you've ever gotten into? Several people responded. Here are some of the responses. We almost divorced, literally almost divorced, over the paint color of our living room. One fellow wrote this. My college roommate and I didn't speak for three weeks because of an argument we had regarding the toilet paper roll placement, whether the goes over or under. It started off as a discussion, then it became an argument, then to the point where we were calling each other names and got into a fight. It stopped when I broke his wrist. Mary Ann wrote this. We, my husband and I, got into a big argument whether or not candy corn was actually a vegetable. My husband (laughs) insists that it is. (laughs) Rochelle wrote, we got into a big argument who is going to get back out of bed to turn off the light. We were both so stubborn we slept all night with the light left on. (laughs) Stephanie said, when I was pregnant I cried because he made tater tots for dinner and I didn't like them. We fought about it for two days. Andrea said, he got me tulips for one year for Easter. They were fake. He said he didn't know they were fake. He said it was ludicrous that he didn't, I said that it was ludicrous he didn't know they were fake and he deliberately bought me unreal flowers. We stayed mad for several days. Dean wrote, My girlfriend was mad at me for several days because she said I was mean to her in her dream. (laughs) My wife and I argued for hours over when a.m. was and when p.m. was. I mean, she argued a.m. was how we label the afternoon. The A stood for afternoon. My wife and I had a very hot argument over which would weigh more, a pound of bricks or a pound of feathers. We went back and forth forever while I tried to explain it to her. It did not help when her mother said, well, what if they were wet feathers? A co-worker and I had a big debate that led to things being said that ruined our relationship. It all started over who painted the Mona Lisa. She insisted it was painted by Leonardo DiCaprio. When I was a kid, my friend and I stood facing each other arguing over which hand was your left hand, which was your right hand. It took us several minutes to realize that when standing opposite each other, you're looking at the opposite hand. I witnessed a friend berate her boyfriend because he wished on a shooting star before she did and stole her wish. The same couple had a big blow up because he took a sip of her juice. This gal wrote, she says, when I was a freshman in high school my sister was doing her homework. My brother and I were in the room sitting on the couch watching TV. She looked up from her homework and asked if Thomas Jefferson was a Democrat or a Republican. My brother answered. I don't even remember what he said, but immediately I said the opposite just to be contrary. He got so mad he screamed at me, and I held my position just because. Next thing you know, we were screaming at each other, Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican. And then it went on for a period of time until we started wrestling on the ground. When mom came in, she asked what we were arguing about. We were so embarrassed we stopped and never said another word. Stupid. Silly arguments. But I bet you could add one. I bet you you could put something up there. And you could say, well, this is something that we argued about, and you know it happens, but it's really a shame when it happens amongst believers. It happened in the New Testament. The believers didn't always get along. The 12 that Jesus had to- chosen, they had some difficulties time and time again. In fact, they argued a lot amongst themselves over who was going to be the greatest. There was a time when two of them came to Jesus and they, their mother got involved and they said, give us the best seats, the right hand, the left hand next to your kingdom. All the others got really ticked off and they were all upset for a period of time. When it came to the Last Supper, They were so mad at each other that they wouldn't even do the common courtesy of washing one another's feet. Though Peter and John were supposed to have set it all up they wouldn't do it for the others. Jesus goes on and explains during that evening. He says that you're going to deny me. That one of you is going to betray me and then the rest of you are all going to flee. They were so so disgusted with one another that the argument goes kind of like this way. Though everybody else would deny never I. In other words I believe that the rest aren't as good as I am. You have the time in the New Testament where the disciples see somebody else doing ministry in the name of Jesus Christ. They stop him because he's not a part of their group. This idea of conflict and and people not getting along in church settings bothered Jesus. So Jesus dealt with it frequently. In the Gospels, he frequently talks about the idea of disciples getting along. That disciples stop the judging one another. That the disciples stop the clicks. That the disciples would stop prejudging and attacking one another or being upset with one another. And he has multiple times where he talks about that the greatest servant is the one who is going to serve all. The leader, the greatest leader, excuse me, is one who would serve all. And he t- does that. In John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, it's the record of the Last Supper. In that meal alone, Jesus definitely goes after the idea of, hey guys, get along. The guy's got to have harmony. In fact, when they wouldn't even wash feet, he washes the feet of the disciples just to embarrass, quote unquote, and to show them that they need to be willing to serve one another. In times throughout this meal, several times, he says a new commandment I give to you, a new commandment I give to you, a new commandment I give to you, and it's that you love one another even as I have loved you. And sets the bar really high. When he's talking to them, He makes it clear to them. He says that you need to have a unity and a compassion and a harmony with one another or you're not going to be an effective witness. He says to them, not only in John 13 but John 17 he says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then he prays about it. Look in John 17. We're down in verse 20 and those of you who were in my Sunday school class, we just talked about this a few moments and so I'm not going to focus on this text but I want to just highlight the thought that he prays for you and me. In John chapter 17 as he is there at the Garden of Gethsemane or coming close to it he says, neither pray I for these alone, that is the the eleven that are still with him. But he says, for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that's you and me, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Do you see unity? Unity and harmony between believers is going to make an impact in witnessing. He goes on. He says, The glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. And so Jesus has this overriding concern that his children, his disciples, would get along. That they would not have the attitude that we're not going to talk to one another. We're not going to visit with one another. We're going to sit at different spots. Rather, he says there needs to be unity. Now, he, he dealt with it with the disciples. And you would have thought that after they had heard this that there would have been a difference. But no. It continued on into the book of Acts. It goes into the epistles. You find that the church in the early years had a lot of conflicts. That people didn't get along the way they were supposed to. The early church, there's a group in the church that are upset the way their group of widows aren't being taken care of the way they think. There's in the book of uh, Corinthians, there's a group of people that have their favorite preachers. They're not going to go to church and listen to so-and-so preach. They want to only go when so-and-so preaches. And they divided the church into different groups saying who's the favorite preacher. There was conflicts even when they had meals together. There was some who would not sit with different ethnic groups. These are born again believers. The apostle Paul, Peter, got involved with it. He gets up and walks away from a table because he's afraid that he's with the wrong ethnic group. Paul has to rebuke him, Galatians 2. There are some, according to 1 Corinthians 11, who are more wealthy than others. They don't want to share their food with other individuals in the church. And so they cause this division over who brought what kind of food. Romans 14 points out a whole passage that there is a criticism in, within the church that people are upset with one another because they have different standards. And so there's an attack. You don't have the same standards as I do, so I'm more spiritual than you. And it divided the body of Christ that Paul is under the inspiration of Scripture, or the Spirit. He has to write to them and say stop it. Receive one another. Stop this divisiveness just because you have a difference in non-important issues that are personal standards based upon your personal experiences. In 1 Timothy 5, there's a group going through the church highly critical of the preacher, Timothy. And they're attacking him. He doesn't do this right or that right or whatever it is. And they're getting a rallying cry of some of within the body to say that they want to, to change. And Paul has to write and said, now stop this you don't receive these accusations this week. And then in Third John, there's a preacher who's abusing the congregation, thinking he is better than them and he is dictating and dominating in the church and not letting individuals have their, their opportunity to express their opinions and he is becoming a tyrant and a dictator in the church. All of these are wrong. Paul writes in one letter to warn the people. In Thessalonians, he writes to him. he says, this idea of division, it is really dangerous. There's a group in the church that are critical of Paul. They say that Paul doesn't care because Paul doesn't come to visit them the way he said he would. Paul has to write and say, Brethren, we were taken from you for a short time in presence, but not in heart. I really care. I endeavored the more abundantly to come and see you. But, he adds, he says, we would have come. Even I would have come and visited, but Satan has hindered us. Why did Satan break up the road? Why did Satan put obstacles in Paul's path so he could not get back to the Church of Thessalonica and minister the way he wanted to? Because Satan is a, is really, really, really interested in dividing the brothers and sisters in Christ. And so God frequently writes to them. And he says, listen, there has got to be a harmony in the body. There has got to be a unity. There has got to be fellowship. There has got to be a receiving of one another. The word receiving that's used repeatedly in the New Testament isn't necessarily our idea of a handshake. It has more of the idea of embracing. Physically, literally being so excited that you give this big hug. And he says, that's the attitude we should have. It might be seen in a handshake, but the attitude is, I am glad to see you. I want to see you. I want to spend some time with you. So we find that even though it happened in the New Testament, it didn't stop. Even though they were warned to stop, it just continued. And it continued to foster. There's a a preacher who does a lot of books on marketing the church. His name is Thomas Rainier, works with the Southern Baptist uh, Convention. And he was at a convention a few years ago, and he just asked randomly that in this group of a number of preachers and church leaders, he said, you know, have you ever experienced de- uh, open debate in your business meetings or conflicts in your church service that over something? And he said, write it down. And these are several of the responses he got from this group of about 40 different pastors. He said that here's some of the arguments. Our church had a big church business meeting argument over the appropriate length of the pastor's beard. We had a fight whether or not to build a children's playground or use that same land for a cemetery. We had one, church, one big de- debate in our church. A deacon accusing another deacon of sending an anonymous letter. They decided to settle the matter in the parking lot. We had a church dispute of whether or not to install restroom dividers in the ladies' restroom. I'm in favor of the dividers, okay. We had a church argument and vote to decide if we should keep a clock in the worship center or whether it should be removed. We had a 45-minute heated debate over which type of filing cabinet to purchase, black or brown. We had a fight over a picture of Jesus in the foyer. Our church had a split over whether the the church staff should be clean-shaven. We had a dispute over whether the worship leader should be required to have his shoes on during the service or not. Our church argument was over the discovery that the church annual budget was off by 10 cents. Finally, after two hours, somebody got up and put a dime on the pulpit. (laughs) Our business meeting turned into a divisive thing of whether the church should purchase a weed eater or not. It took two business meetings over two weeks to resolve the problem. We had an argument over whether green beans should be served in the church potluck meals. These two churches reported they had fights over the type of coffee they would use. In one of the churches, they removed Folgers and put a stronger Starbucks brand. In the other church, they simply moved to the stronger blend. Members left the church over the stronger coffee. We had a major conflict in our church when the youth borrowed a crock pot that hadn't been used for years. We had an argument on whether the church should allow deviled eggs at a church fellowship meal. We had an argument over who has the authority to buy postage stamps for the church. Our church literally split over using the term potluck or pot blessing. We had an argument over who has access to the copy machine. Our church split over whether or not we should sing happy birthday each week. We had an argument of whether or not to allow fake plants in the auditorium or not. Are you serious? That's what this is about? that we get together to worship, to fight over such silly, inane, dumb things when the world is going to hell. The word of God would have us to say that we're supposed to be better than this. It was never intended that we would have cliques. It was never intended that we would have divisiveness and divisions over silly colors and, and flowers and things like that. The word of God gives us the only, the only worthwhile thing that we should be contending for is the faith. What is the truth? And so the word of God tells us that what we need to do is we need to stand united. So I'm going to take a break from the family series for the next few weeks and just talk about united we stand. We as a church what are biblical truths that we need to practice? You see why? Come September we're going to do a major outreach in this church. We're going to do neighborhood night. And if we don't have unity here, what good is it to do an outreach into our community? If we can't have unity of purpose and of heart, then we're going to fail according to the word of God. We will not be able to show the world that we are one in Christ and we have nothing to offer them. And so based on the Word of God, I'm going to invite you to go with me and study some principles in Luke 14 today. Luke chapter 14 about how we are to be united. And I'm going to start with a passage that is a very unusual passage. It's in Luke chapter 14. It's Jesus speaking not to his disciples in particular, but he is talking to a group of Pharisees with his disciples present. Jesus is preaching It is in the latter half of his ministry. He has at this time taken it upon himself at this point in his ministry to make a major change. He is now going to be focusing mostly on training the twelve but he is still open to being spending time with others. The Jewish leaders, they hate him. They want to get rid of him. And so they still follow him. They still are critical of him. And so there's opportunities that sometimes while is most of the week spending time training the 12, he is going to interact with bigger groups. Well, on this occasion, he is invited to a home after a Sabbath service to a Pharisee's home. He takes the invitation. He goes to the Pharisee's home, and when they arrive, you have to understand That the Pharisees are not inviting him because they really like Jesus. They are inviting him because this is going to give them opportunity to find fault with Jesus. They're going to have an occasion where they can see him do something, say something that they can then criticize him for. So they gather for the meal and the way that the meals were set up is probably different than what you're going to do today. They were going to have a meal where typically the wealthy people would have their house, they'd have their courtyard, their uh, their buildings here, and they would have buildings here and buildings here, and they would have the gate out in the front of the area. And they would have their meal out in the center of their courtyard or their front yard and then that way they could have an open air, it would be cozier and it would be nicer. and In fact, they could have a bigger group. And the people who are walking by or who would stand at the gate to observe they would be able to see who's there. And it was very, very traditional. It was very, very, you know, proper at that time that if you have a meal, you invite the big wakes from town and you're showing off that you have these people at your meal and especially this miracle worker, he's come to stay at your home. It's going to raise your prestige in the community. So Jesus is there in this open courtyard. There's people standing. In fact, as you read the beginning of 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 Luke chapter 14, look at the first few verses. You have a man who comes into the courtyard. This man has a this man is, has, uh, has been afflicted with some type of, of palsy, dropsy, and he's having difficulty. So the Pharisees are watching. This man wants Jesus to do a miracle. He does. Jesus heals this man. The immediate response of the Pharisees, who are the ones who are to shepherd in this town, it's their responsibility to shepherd this man who has the handicap. The immediate response of the Pharisees is, how dare you, Jesus, heal this man? How dare you do something good on the Sabbath day? We're not supposed to be working on the Sabbath day. Any of you pause and in your mind already say, hypocrite, you're not supposed to be working, but what are you doing on the Sabbath day yourself? got half the town invited for a meal. But you're going to be critical of Jesus for doing something special on the Sabbath day. And so they're, they're looking at Jesus and they're upset that Jesus did the miracle. Well Jesus is going to talk. He's going to defend himself but he's going to do a little bit more than that. He's going to point out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Not just in their Sabbath rules but in their lack of compassion for the people that they're supposed to be fellowshipping with. He's going to attack their lack of concern for other people. He's going to attack and point out how they are the leaders, the spiritual leaders of this community of faith, this Jewish community, and they are not setting the example for kindness, compassion, and unity to those that are put in their charge. And he's going to be very pointed. Now in his comments, the ones that I especially want to be focusing on, he is going to be making comments to the Pharisees at the table with him, but also remember his disciples are there. There is a broader audience. There is the group that's there, and Jesus speaks to them, and look down in the text with me, the few verses that I want to highlight, down to verse 12. He said to them that had bidden him, when you make a dinner or a supper, call not your friends nor your brother, and neither your kinsmen nor your rich neighbors, lest they also bid you again and recompense be made. But when you make a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you shall be blessed. For they cannot recompense thee or repay thee, but you shall be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. What's he mean? What's he talking about? But Jesus is talking about fellowshipping with other people. People who are of your community of faith and how we should fellowship. Can I make several observations quickly? Can I make observation number one? There is always room to improve and do more so as to promote harmony and fellowship. There is always room to improve and do more. You see what he's doing? He's talking to this man. And he's saying to this man, you need to improve. Now, mind you, in some of the comments I've already made, there are some of you who have already in your mind said, I am glad he's preaching this. Those others need it. Let so-and-so have it. Well, maybe the others need it. And maybe so-and-so should be getting it. But there is always room for improvement. There is never a time that we should come and sit under a message at any time and say, I'm going to shovel this to somebody else. I'm going to this is for so-and-so. No, no. When Jesus is speaking, you and I need to realize that we are like this individual that hosted a meal for Jesus. Jesus is saying to him, hey listen, when you do a supper in the future, even though you've done it in the past, keep it up. There's more to do. Even though you're the leader in the community, you've got some improvement to do. Even though you are one who has, who has done this type of thing before and are doing it right now, there's improvement. There's improvement in your attitude, and in your actions. Disciples, you need to have some improvement in the way that you treat one another. So let me just lay it out, Jesus says, there's always room for improvement when it comes to fellowshipping with one another. There is always efforts that we can make to do better for promoting harmony and fellowship. So the problem we have is Pharisee-like leaders, Pharisee-like individuals are those who say, no, no, I'm good enough. No, no, I've done enough. No, no, I don't need to listen to what Jesus says. But I'm encouraging you, who are born again, you who are followers of Jesus Christ, that you rise above Pharisee-like thinking and you realize there is always room for improvement and to do more in this area. There is an opportunity for you to examine how can I improve fellowshipping with one another. Let me give you another principle. Second principle. Jesus calls the individual to take some action personally. Personally, you take some action to promote harmony. When he says to the individual, to the man, he says, when you make a dinner, when you call others, he doesn't say to him, when your friends do this or when the the synagogue does this. He says, no, when you. When you, okay, the point is personal effort Personal responsibility to say, what can I do? Not we, but what can I do to promote harmony? The Bible is filled with all kinds of personal action that can be taken. Personal action is seen in the New Testament about you greeting one another. About you receiving one another. About you entertaining hospitality. Having peoples in your home. About you esteeming others better than yourself putting them first, recognizing them, letting them tell their story, letting them talk about themselves. It is the idea of you not being prejudiced, you not being partial because of monies, because of gender, because of wealth, because of looks, because of skin color, ethnic background. There's all kinds of action that says, not only can we improve, but you, you need to take some personal effort To see how you can promote more unity, more fellowship within the body of Christ. Principle number three. Principle number three is we are not to limit our fellowship to those people with whom we are the most comfortable. We are not to do that. We aren't supposed to say, and by the way, we do it. We are comfortable doing that. We usually sit in the same area because we're comfortable. We usually invite the same people Because we're comfortable, we found some camaraderie with those individuals. We usually hang around at teen camp with the same few because we have something in common. And that isn't saying that that's evil. But I'm saying this we're not to limit our fellowship to those and those only. This passage calls for us to do something totally different. When you make a dinner, he says in verse 12, I want you to start doing something totally different. I want you to call not just your family, not just your neighbors, not just those individuals who who are like you. Pharisees, their tendency is, I want to be only with a certain group. I want to be only with a certain class. I only want people who will reciprocate and give back to me what I've given to them. I want only those who will acknowledge me and promote me. That's a Pharisee-like attitude. And he says, no, 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 no. When you who are believers, you who want to make improvement, which should be all of you, you who are going to take personal action, which should be all of you, he says, I want you to make this change. I want you to stop limiting your fellowship to just a select few, and I want you to broaden your horizons. I want you, in fact, to call, to spend time with, interact with the poor, the maimed, the blind. Those who others do not want to reach out to. Those who cannot give back to you. Those you normally don't seek out, you seek them out. Those who are unlike you, you make them like you. You spend time with them. And so Jesus is very pointed that we should go out of our way to interact with people we don't know. We should go out of our way to interact with people who are unlike us. We should go out of our way to interact with those who necessarily may not return our gestures of friendship. That's his statement. That's what he's calling us to do. Now, that doesn't mean that on the 4th you change all your barbecue, but maybe you should think about it. What about that neighbor that you've never talked to? What about that older person down the block who who that older individual, they, they, they have a lonely life. They're kind of in their house all the time. You don't know them, but why don't you go out of your way? Why don't you extend yourself a little bit? Why don't you unlimit the barbecue and expand your horizon and do what Jesus says in the fellowship? It could be, it could be interpreted this way when it comes to church fellowship. When it comes to us gathering as a body, as an assembly, it could be in these, excuse me, it could be in the sense that all of a sudden you go out of your way to talk to people you've never talked to before. It could be the idea that instead of coming in and getting your pew and sitting there and waiting for others to come, you get up and you go and talk to others. It could be maybe you move around the auditorium and sit where you've met pe- not met people before. Maybe it's the idea that you don't say, hey, I was friendly to them and they weren't friendly back to me, so I'll never talk to them again. You stop that foolishness. Maybe it's the idea that you put the cell phones away after the church or before the church and you visit with people instead of a device. Maybe it's the idea that what you do is that you really, really focus on trying to interact with others. And when you do talk to others, you talk about them, not yourself. And Jesus is saying, look out. Look out around you. There are some who look lame and maimed and they don't look like you. Extend yourself and go out of your way. Principle number four. Principle number four is this. The biggest obstacle to promoting this is our personal pride. The biggest hindrance to people interacting more is our own pride. The Pharisees, they are like these people people down in South America. Same type of thing. There's a statue that's with the statue of Christ of the Andes that Chile and Argentina put up together to show their harmony. After the statue was erected, there was a problem that some of the Chileans began to protest and get upset about this statue. That was to do and to show harmony between the people. Some of the Chileans got very, very upset about it because the statue was faced in such a way that more of the back of the statue was towards Chile. Chile them towards Argentina. And so they were upset. They wanted the chat statue changed so it was facing more of them. Finally, finally somebody, one of the political leaders had the idea, he said, he published this and the argument stopped. He said, the people of Argentina need more watching than we do. Okay. Yeah. Seriously, we're going to argue over something that is a symbol of peace between us because we didn't get more of it. Oh, does that silliness ever happen in circles of Bible believing churches? Yeah. Yeah. And Jesus says, Hey listen now, don't be Pharisee like Pharisee like. You see the Pharisees operate that they have to be noticed. The only reason they do fellowship is so that it falls back on them. Look, look what he says in previous comments that he says in verse 6. He put forth a parable, or verse 7, he put forth a parable about those who were bidden when he had observed how these Pharisees operated. He said, hey, when you're bidden to a man's wedding feast, don't go and sit in the highest, ta- highest table. Lest there be a more honorable man that be bidden of him. And that bade thee and come and say to you, hey, give this man your place he says, and you have the embarrassment of taking the lower place. But when you're bidden, go, go look for the lowest area. It's, it's, it's totally different. Totally different than what we do. In those days, the feasts usually were staged outdoors, and they would elevate certain parts of the outdoor courtyard. So on the platform would be the really special guests. And he says, when you're invited, don't you assume you're the special guest and go up on top, sit up here, and then somebody has to come and say, ah, you're seated way over there. He says, just take it upon yourself. Go sit. Go let others. Let others be elevated. But not the Pharisees. The Pharisees were all about being recognized. They would limit their contact to only those who would promote them, recognize them, honor them. And Jesus is saying, come on, come on, let's not operate that way. What I want you to do is put aside your pride. Put it aside and stop letting your pride be your obstacle fellowship with others. That's why they wouldn't fellowship with the maimed, the lame, the blind, because they had nothing to give back. They wouldn't recognize the Pharisees. And he says, oh, come on, stop. Stop. You, you serve. You serve. You know, pride getting in our way of fellowship? These are words that would never be stated out in public, but I've heard them. I've heard the reasons why there isn't fellowship at times. That person's not my type. Oh, I, I, what if I say something to this, this stranger, something that will embarrass me? Isn't that pride? What about, you know, I, I'm perfectly happy with my own little group, and I don't need to extend myself because I've got my friend and them and them and them, and we're just, we're very content that it's us, and so we aren't going to invite others into our group because we're happy. What about their needs? Why should I go away, out, in, out of my way and talk to others? They don't come and talk to me. Isn't that a matter of pride? Isn't it a matter of pride that says, I don't need Christian fellowship? I'm spiritual enough? I just come here for worship and just to be preached to and and just preach the word. I don't need to have any interaction with anybody in the body of Christ. Isn't that contrary to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that says that everyone in the body needs the others in the body to grow? It's a matter of pride that says I don't need an interaction with others. And he says, come on, come on, come on. We need to reach out. In fact, let me give you another comment. Jesus encourages a spirit of selflessness, a spirit of humility that seeks to encourage others. In this passage, he says to the man, he says, what I want you to do is encourage those who are really hurting. There are those who physically hurt. And by the way, if they are physically hurting, surely they have got other hurts as well in that society. Surely they are being ignored. Surely they are being put down. And he says those are the individuals that we as a body, that we as believers, that we who are going to be Christ followers need to extend ourselves to and to say there is hope and help and encouragement in Jesus Christ. You are a somebody if you're born again. You are somebody valuable. Even though the world says you don't have skill sets, you don't have physical assets, in the body of Christ you do. And that's supposed to be relayed. That's supposed to be expressed. And he calls the mature individual to say, work at improving on how to encourage others. Work at improving with humility how you might serve other people. People need encouragement. Stories told of a lady by the name of Mamie. Midwest town, this preacher who shared the story was preaching there in meetings and he saw this happen as he was at the post office that day, standing behind several others, waiting in line to be served at this little country post office. Mamie was in front of him. And finally, after this long line wasn't moving, somebody turned and said, Mamie, what are you here today for? And she says, I need to buy some stamps. And the fellow said, there's the stamp machine over there. You can just do it. Don't have to wait here so long in line. She says, but I want to wait in line. He says, why do you want to wait in line? He says, that machine won't ask about my arthritis don't people need to be asked at times? Don't you? And aren't we supposed to give to others as we would have them give to us? He is saying that what you and I are to practice, Christian fellowship, Christian fellowship that is needed especially by those who are struggling, which in some way includes all of us at some times. But he says, look for those who are especially struggling. Look for that Christian fellowship and encouragement as a way of serving and being helpful to one another. This Christian fellowship is to be done where you take the time and interact with somebody who comes here because they want to learn the word of God, who comes here because their house is lonely. They're by themselves. You're not sure what to say to them? So you don't say anything to that poor, lonely person. Your pride would hold you back from ministering to somebody who is eager to hear some words of encouragement. That poor, feeling like their maimed mom who's overwhelmed by the kids, who doesn't know if she's doing right or wrong, if she's got her head on straight or if it's still sideways, And is questioning her ability as a parent, needs some words of encouragement. That individual who worked all week, put in their 80 hours, they have a tough time staying awake in a service. Not because they're unspiritual, because they're exhausted. And they come for words of encouragement. Hearing the word, they don't need somebody to berate them, but somebody to just say, hey, I'm gonna be praying for you. I know that you're struggling physically. Let me pray for you. Is there something I can do to help you out? Just there are some who walk in these doors at times, they just want to know if somebody cares. And they get caught up in the crowd. Maybe they sit in the balcony and they get caught up with the crowd as, get down the stairs and get out the doors as quickly as possible. And they flow right out. And Nobody says a word to them in the parking lot. Nobody says a word coming down the stairs. Nobody says anything to them and they walk out and go where was Christ? I know we're busy I know we've got things to get to we've got to beat the crowd to the restaurant before it gets real busy and I don't help you out at one bit because I get you out of here late most every Sunday I understand that and I'm not doing it on purpose just to make it miserable for you (laughs) But are we so busy to get to the menu that we forget one another? Are we so focused on our own shyness that we can't take a moment to talk with people around us? And he says, no, no, no. He says, I want you to change. I want you to be something different. In fact, if you do this, I'll reward you for it. Isn't it interesting what he says? Talking to a Pharisee. You're going to be blessed if you do this," he says. Matter of fact, they can't repay you, but I'll repay you, for you will be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Of the just, amazing! What Jesus is talking about has got to be that time in the future where we're standing before Him and we're having judgment day, Bema seat day, the judgment of believers that He's giving out crowns. Crowns that we typically talk about are for soul winning, which the Bible says, loving his appearing, holy living, enduring trials, being faithful in ministry. We know that, but here he adds, I will give rewards for friendliness, for interacting with people that are not normally interacting, interacted with. He says, I'm going to give a crown, I'm going to give rewards for that. Is it a crown? I don't know. But he says, I'm going to recompense you for this. Which means that this is something really important he wants done. That he is going to reward believers for doing it. It must be important to Jesus. It must be something that he, is, that he values highly that he's going to give a reward for it. It obviously means that even though nobody else knows how you invite somebody over, nobody else knows how you talk to an individual beyond your click Nobody else will see it. Jesus does. Nobody else observes that you're standing in a corner talking to somebody that is really, really struggling. But Jesus does. And he notes it. He observes it. And he keeps record of it. And one day he rewards for it. And he gives a reward that every one of us in this room can earn. Some of us cannot earn rewards for singing, because we can't. Some of us can't earn rewards for preaching for pastoring, because that's not your job. Some of us can't earn rewards for some of those other stated items, but this one we all can. There is not a single individual within this room that cannot extend themselves to a new level of friendliness and compassion and hospitality. Not one. Not a single one of us. This is an open reward for all teens Man, ladies of all ages, all couples, all singles. And he says, I'm going to reward you if you do it. It's important to me that you extend yourself beyond. It's a big deal to Jesus. Question is, is it a big deal to you? Or is it just about let's come in and make and give our time and we filled our obligation and we walked out. Christianity is more than just filling time and meeting a quota. It's living the way Christ would have us to live. See, there's one more thought here. Jesus concludes by saying, hey, by the way, the most important thing, the most important fellowship that you need to be sure of is the one with me in my kingdom. Soon as he said resurrection, look at verse 15. Soon as he said resurrection, one of them that heard it said, blessed is he that eats bread in the kingdom. It's probably one of the Pharisees sitting there. The Pharisees believed that they would be in the kingdom. They didn't like Jesus. And so Jesus mentions the resurrection. That means he's talking about his kingdom. He's talking about God's kingdom in the future, heaven on earth. And the Pharisee just immediately says, "Ah yes, praise God, we're going to be there. The reason I say that is the Pharisees believed that they would be there because they're Pharisees. In fact, they called themselves, they took the title gatekeepers in their own writing, they refer to themselves as we're the gatekeepers. We determine who gets in. We determine who doesn't get in. That's how important we are to God. We help God decide. And so this man pipes up. Jesus' response to this man is phenomenal. He gives another story. Right away, Jesus says, okay, you think you're going to make it? You assume that you are the the cream of the crop. You sit here with all of your pomp and circumstance. You don't care that a man just got healed, that I ministered to somebody who was in a low estate, that I encouraged him, his family, and his friends, and you're picking on me. You do all this hospitality for one reason, just to get noticed or to get paid back for your career. He says, that's the way you operate. Your form of religion is all about ritual and being seen in public. So I'm going to tell you a story. A certain man made a great supper and bid many people to come. And he sent his servant at the supper time and said, hey, come, all things are ready now. They all, with one consent, began to make excuses. The first said, I just bought a piece of ground. i got to go inspect it. I pray let me be excused. The other said, I bought five oxen. I need to go and test them. I pray, let me be excused. Another said, I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. Uh, really? How many of you would buy land sight unseen without the internet? Okay, they didn't have the internet. How many of you would buy a car without ever seeing it or testing it? And he's buying animals? Five oxen? He's, he's got a big investment going. Never tested it, but now we got to test it. Don't have time. And then he go on the servants come back and say to the Lord, Hey, listen, everybody that we've invited, they they aren't they aren't gonna come. They aren't listening to your invitation. He got angry. The passage says the master gets angry. And he says, Go out into the streets and the lanes, invite the poor, the maimed, the halt, the blind. And the servant said, Lord, we did it, and still there's room. He says, Go in the highways and the byways and compel even strangers walking by that they come and fill. Because I want a full hey, if I paid for all this Chick-fil-A stuff to be served, I want it to be served. We're not wasting it. And so he's got, they filled it up. And so then he says that none of, in his comment to this Pharisee, none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. In other words, those who were first invited, who did not listen when I said, it's time to pay attention, to get ready, they're not going to be there. You who just said, wait, blessed are those of us who would be there, chances are you're not going to make it. Jesus gives several principles that are so important that are so vital, that that are critical. In this story that Jesus just told, he just says, here's the principle. God wants everyone to be in the kingdom, at the kingdom feast. This is for everyone. Everyone is invited, he says. Everyone. So I I invited the Jews, and eventually I'll invite everyone. He says, but not all of those who know about it. There's a certain group who were invited, got the first message, and they're the religious people, and they're not going to end up coming. Part of the reason they're not going to end up coming is when the day arrived that said, hey, it's here, they rejected. Too busy. Got to do my own thing. Can't stop now. In Matthew, who expands upon, he says that they have to have the right garments. When they come in, they have to have the right garments. If they don't, they get ousted. And so Jesus' point is, you Pharisees know about the kingdom. You've heard about the kingdom. And in order to get in the kingdom, you need to repent. But you haven't listened. You're too busy to listen to my message of repentance. You're too busy to listen to me talk right now. You've got other things to do and you're making all these excuses. You're not going to get into the feast. You're not going to be in the kingdom. And so I'm going to open it up to that man, that poor man that came who needed healing and had faith in me. I'm going to open it to his family and friends. People that you want to have time for, I've got time for. People that you wouldn't deal with like the Gentiles, I'm inviting them. And I'm going to have it in the highways and byways, and I'm going to open this thing up to everyone. And those who listen to me and prepare, they're going to be in there. In other words, you're going to be surprised what people get into heaven one day. it's going to be people you don't expect, you're going to be surprised that you're not going to be in there because you think your own self-righteousness will get you there. And Jesus very clearly, very simply is saying, you're going to miss the most important fellowship in the whole world. For all eternity, you're going to miss it. And he challenges them. His point is you need to personally Personally, ask Christ to forgive you. That's your preparation. You ask Christ to forgive you of your sins and to give you eternal life. Then he gives you the righteous garments that are needed to go into this kingdom. And so Jesus very plainly is telling these Pharisees, you got to listen. You got to listen. I'm giving you an opportunity. Did you ever hear about this guy in 1829? This guy by the name of George Wilson. He was involved in a postal uh, uh, um, robbery. He and another fellow. They robbed the post office in early America. And um, as a result, they committed crimes. They were arrested. They were convicted on six different accounts of a variety of things. And uh, the conclusion was, because you robbed the post office and you threatened life, your life is going to be taken. So at that time, it was very, very clear capital punishment. And so George Wilson was going to be executed by hanging for robbing the post office. Well, some of his friends went to President Andrew Jackson and they talked him into giving a pardon because this fellow was an upstanding citizen other than he robbed the post office. And so President Jackson was persuaded to give him a pardon. A pardon of all of, of this one particular crime. Now there was other crimes that he would have to pay for because they found embezzlement, things like that. But he would not have to suffer this execution for this robbery. George Wilson did something that was very, very unusual. He refused the pardon he said he doesn't want it. Well his friends went to court insisting that the president gave a pardon therefore he should be pardoned for it. This man insisted no I don't want it so take it away. They went all the way to the supreme court the supreme court ruling was we cannot force somebody to accept forgiveness isn't this true in a spiritual sense? God is offering forgiveness to any and to all And saying, I will give it to you. But it's up to you whether you accept it for yourself. It's available, it's there, but the Pharisee-like individual says, no, I will do it on my own. The Pharisee-like individual says, I'm good enough. The Pharisee-like individual says, I'm guaranteed heaven because I'm a Pharisee, I'm a Jew, I'm an American, I go to church, I do this, that, and the other thing. And God says very clearly, you must be born again. Jesus put it this way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man can come unto the Father but by me. You need Christ. You need to ask Christ. You need to put your faith and trust in Him. Pastor Binkley used this illustration this week at a funeral that he did. It's about a George Blondin. He was a Frenchman that came to America in 1855. Joined the circus. And all of a sudden he started promoting himself in 1859 with a totally different approach. What he did is he and his, he and his um, agent, they started having this guy who did tightrope walking do a tightrope walk over Niagara Falls. Just up from the falls actually by one of the bridges that used to be there. And he did his first walk in 1859. Then he did a series of other walks. He would do all kinds of things. There was like 40 of them or so that he did over a period of time. He would go out there pushing a wheelbarrow. He'd go out there on stilts. He even went out there one time with a cooking pot, went and sat on the wire halfway out and made himself an omelet and ate the omelet. He took a chair out there and stood on one leg of the chair as it balanced. He even carried his agent. He offered other people, but nobody would take it up, so his agent agreed to it. He carried his agent across on his back. He made this offer repeatedly to people as he would stand there and say, do you believe I can do this? They would cheer, they would cheer, they would cheer. Do you think I can carry you know, this wheelbarrow across or push across? Yes, yes, yes. And people always were there, and they were always saying, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. And then he made, would make an offer. He said, who wants to ride in the wheelbarrow? nobody ever took him up on it. They believed he could do it. They saw him do these things, but nobody would personally put their faith in him to have have him push them across. Listen, you may hear about and see and think all you want about Jesus Christ, but you need to get in his wheelbarrow of salvation. You need to let him have you have control where you say, Jesus, I am trusting in you to get me into heaven. Not myself, not my good looks, not my baptism. You need to call upon Christ and put total faith in him. You need. The greatest fellowship promised is that feast in heaven one day. You need to do it. You need to call upon Christ. That is the greatest fellowship. But let me remind you, child of God, those who are already born again, you need to fellowship the way Jesus did. He opens it up. Himself, his fellowship with anybody and everybody. He extends himself to the poor, the maimed, the, le- the lame, the maimed, the weak. You need to extend yourself and love the way Christ would love and does love. Work on improving fellowship. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed, and before we even practice fellowship today, let's make sure. That everyone here knows of their eternal fellowship. That they are convinced in their heart and confident that one day they will be in heaven. I'm going to close. I'm going to pray for our meal and for that opportunity we have. Before I do that, I want to give this opportunity to any male, any female, any adult, any child, any teen, any married couple, or any single individual. If you are not sure of your eternal destiny, you could right now make sure of that. We have staff who are over by the side door where the kids went out for junior churches. They are willing and waiting and wanting to talk to an individual about their, about your assurance of going to heaven. About having that fellowship that one day at that great feast in heaven. If you don't know for sure, aren't positive you're going to be there, the Bible says you can't know. These things have are written that you may know that you have eternal life. These individuals standing by that door right now, they want to show you. So as the organist plays through a stanza of a song, and before I pray, you are more than welcome to get up from your seat, go over to that side of the auditorium, and be able to talk with one of those individuals. <clears throat> and they will show you from the word of God what you need to do this morning, what you need to pray to make sure you're on your way to heaven. It's according to the Word of God. You don't join our church. You make no commitment to us. You establish a relationship with Christ. If you would like to know, get up and do that right now. Feel free to just stand up, walk to that side of the auditorium before we pray. You can have that private time before we have fellowship. You can find Christ to be your Savior. We're going to stand together and I'm going to close in prayer. If you, while I pray, you want to talk with somebody, let's stand together. Let's let's let others be dismissed if they need to go and talk. They can get past you better. Let me have a word of prayer and then we're going to have that luncheon fellowship. You are welcome to stay and enjoy it and to have some fellowship with one another. Otherwise, God bless you. Have a great day. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to be challenged, to be encouraged. And thank you for our many visitors, especially as I focus this morning talking to our church family and about the needs that we have to improve our area of fellowship with one another. I pray that you would help me and help my friends here to not just hear this truth, but to actually work at it this week, to live it. But thank you most of all for the fellowship we have with Christ. Thank you for the bond that he gives us. Help us to reflect that in how we get together this day. Bless the food that we're going to partake of and give us a great day of safety throughout this weekend and of good fellowship with family and friends. And most of all, we thank you for the freedoms we have in this country. Help us to remain free, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for being here. See you later. Let's go eat.